With the 14th pick in the 2019 NBA Draft, the Boston Celtics select Romeo Langford, Grant Williams, Carson Edwards, Tremont Waters, Vincent Poirier, Javante Green, Robert Williams III, Jimmy Ogilvy, Brad Wanamaker, Daniel Tice, Ennis Cantor, Taco Fall, Marcus Smart, Gordon Hayward, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, Kemba Walker, from the University of Connecticut. And we are back with another episode of From the Rafters. Uh, Sam and I are here with another really cool guest. We have Bobby Manning today. How are you doing, Bobby? Really cool. <laughs> That's good. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll just take cool. Uh, so great to be here, guys. I know the last couple of days, I know we're going to get into some of the stuff that went down. Yes. It was it was historic. Oh, historic, yeah. I'd say. I think this is a week we're going to look back on for decades. Oh, yeah. Crazy stuff is happening. Crazy stuff. Before we get into that, uh, Sam and I like to open up the show with a little more fun question. Uh, step away from basketball for a sec. Bobby, have you ever been to Five Guys? Yes. Uh, I worked I worked at Audi, a car dealership, back in okay. the winter. Yeah, until about March when everyone got laid off, and I got laid off from there too. So that was oh, that was my lunch spot. I got you. I got you. Have you ever been out west, like to In-N-Out or anything? Once. I had once. it once. Okay. Now, this is a big debate. I know there's an east-west coast battle, like, Five guys are in and out or whatever. What do you prefer? Five guys are in and out. Ooh, this this might be unfair because I've only had in and out once, but yeah. I'm going to lean five guys. I really am. So there's a couple different reasons. Number one, you get the two patties. They stack them. Um, number two, I like the they use the peanut oil or whatever. It, yeah. it adds a good taste to it. Um, I'm not crazy about the fries, but I'm just going to keep it to the burgers. And they got fresh, fresh vegetables there. I always like the onions, the lettuce, and the tomato that they serve. So I'm going to stick with five guys, believe it or not. I tend to agree. Sam, what do you think? Only had In-N-Out one time as well, so yeah. like I really can't It didn't blow say. me away. I don't know. What do they put that? Thousand Island on it or whatever? Yeah. The dressing there? Like That doesn't really do it for me. So, so Sam, you lean five guys too? Yeah, five guys. I mean... The best part about Five Guys is, like, I can go to Five Guys. Yes. So that definitely adds value to Five Guys. Yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> I just hear, I hear all these arguments. People say, oh, Five Guys is so overrated. And I'm sitting there like, what are you talking about, oh, Five Guys like, is fire. Oh, it's so good. And they have the machine, the, the what's it called, the Coke machine that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can pick all your drinks. The free peanuts, too. It's just a whole experience there. Yes, yes. I'm not crazy about the fries, but I'll take a whole box of those peanuts. Oh, yeah. They're so good. Big fan. Big fan. Uh, but anyways, Bobby, you mentioned it earlier. A lot of stuff has gone down in the past two days. The whole history of the league has just like taken this shift. And it's just uh, making movements towards change. Do you see there is a plan in place now, but is this season going to finish, do you think? Do you think it's definitely going to get through? Yeah, it will. And it, that didn't look certain two days ago for good reasons, I think players in the emotion of that moment wanted to go into the streets. I know Jalen Brown in particular tweeted that he wanted to be out protesting right now. And George Hill, especially, I thought was one of the first people to talk on this and was like, why did we even come here? And then I think they had that long discussion on a Wednesday night. It was Wednesday night. And then they come, go to bed, a lot of frustration out of that meeting. And then they come back and 
probably a combination of three things inspired it. They know there was going to be drastic consequences CBA-wise if they just walked out and voided the TV deals and all these things, and that would have put next season, maybe even the season after, at risk. Mm-hmm. And of course, the financial viability of all that they want to do. Uh, you know, we always talk about the LeBron Jameses and the Giannis's and these guys on max contracts, but there are guys making a million bucks, two million bucks, who have, you know, half that being taken on taxes and then money needed for their families and stuff like that. Like, it, it, they get painted as an unlimited money pool, but there probably are only a few players that could make it through easily without a season this year and next year. So I think that was one of the primary motivating factors that's going to have them finish this thing out. But, you know, I think they also got a lot of stuff that they wanted. Um, Three major accomplishments out of just one day of protest. They get a call with the Wisconsin attorney general, the lieutenant governor. Um, They get further commitments and uh, conversations going forward with the owners. And they sent a powerful message through the media, through all the different channels that people consume this protest through, that if things aren't going the way they want it to, they can always stop us. And they're going to continue it on their own accord right now. But if they don't like the way things are going, if they don't like the commitments that are made down the line, they can always just stop this. They're in control. They have the power. And as the NBA and the teams yielded to them over the last couple of days, uh, they know that they're going to have the support of the organizations in the league when they do want to take a stand. For sure. I think huge, huge movements in the past two days. That statement given by the uh, NBA and the Players Association today just showed it uh, in those few paragraphs. Um, Specifically during that meeting, I'm going to go to Sam here first because I know he has um, some strong opinions on this player. uh, player, But Bobby, feel free to chime in whenever. Sam, LeBron James, uh, big topic at the meeting. What what are your thoughts on him? (laughs) Well, you know, he's a diva. I mean, what what else is there to say? He, he got up and he left after um, – I mean, he had an okay reason, though. Let, let's be honest. He, they, they were kind of blindsided by the Milwaukee thing, even though you had heard about it all day that there was going to be protests of some sort. Celtics were considering doing it with the Raptors. You knew it was going to happen at some point. So as much as he wants to say he was blindsided, was he really? I don't know. I don't know if it's fair to say he was completely blindsided because – Plenty of teams have talked about not playing in their games to protest. So everything's been so controlled in this environment. The names on the back of the jerseys were limited. A lot of the messaging has been through advertisers, through the league itself. Eventually, as the message started to fade and we got back to who's MVP, who's going to win the finals, who's going to be the next coach of the 76ers, all these basketball topics, I think there was a real hunger to take this back to the own accord of the players. And that's a big reason, I think, why, like you said, Sam, players got frustrated that the Bucks just walked off the court without much uh, messaging and cooperation before. Well, I think the Bucks just wanted to, in that moment, do something that wasn't scripted, that wasn't on the books, that wasn't approved by anybody else. They wanted to send a strong message. I think that's, that's probably what LeBron was trying to do there, too, when he walked out of the meeting. I mean, they wanted to have some dramatic moments that sent a strong message and weren't very heavily conceived. I know one of the more frustrating things out of the whole NBA bubble so far is the fact that Jimmy Butler tried to walk out on the court without a name on the back of his jersey, and the league cracked down hard on that, and they were very aggressive in stopping him. They made him go change the jersey and you know, sent out a press release that that wasn't part of the agreement. So I think this week, with all the emotion running high, like I talked about, um, the LeBrons and these teams and these other people just wanted to do something their way. 
I think it's it's hard because you see all these statements from not even just the NBA around the world saying, how can you expect us to protest when you only let us protest like within your rules? Yeah. And I feel like that's a huge part of what a bunch of the NBA players were feeling, like uh, especially like you mentioned the Jimmy Butler thing. How are you going to tell me how to protest? At that point, it's not even a protest. It's just you telling me what to do, which is the exact thing we're kind of trying to protest. So what did they say the problem they had was with that? I I don't know what the problem is. So they they pre-approved messages on the back of the jerseys for two reasons, I heard. They didn't want the players pitching their private ventures or having their agents plug some, you know, it's interesting. Russell Westbrook owns a t-shirt company. And so right. that seemed like the kind of thing that they didn't want pitched or backed or, you know, publicized through the back of the jerseys. And that seemed to be one of the motivating factors that they wanted to have pre-approved messages. The other one was being that they didn't want uh, George Floyd on the back of the jerseys or Michael Brown or any of those names out of respect to the family. So you understand that one. The other one was that, um, you know, messaging of the brands of the players and stuff like that. They wanted to keep that out of there. And Butler's, I know it wasn't part of the pre-approved plans, but it didn't seem to strike on either of those things. And they ended up using a lot of Russell Westbrook's company to publicize the message anyway. So that's why I think a lot of people were frustrated about what went happened with Butler because he was just essentially trying to show, as we saw with Sterling Brown a couple of years ago, that it doesn't matter who he is when he takes the name off his jersey. When he takes the jersey off, he's just another black man in America, and any of this stuff could happen to him too. Yeah, I think it was a great message. I I was watching that game when it happened, and I just kind of was confused as to why he was being forced to change the jersey. But um, I think they should have or at least could have like tried to let him send that message because I think it was really good and a really perfect message that he was trying to send. But uh, uh, Bobby, I don't know. Did you get a chance to read the Chris Haynes article that he put out uh, about the meeting? Uh, I saw bits and pieces of his tweets, but I didn't see the full article yet. Mm-hmm. I got you. So I read it this morning. I sent it to Sam. Did you happen to see the piece about Patrick Beverly? Yes, he was he was quoted. Uh, you say it, you read it. So I'm not just going to quote him on he the He said something along the lines of Michelle Roberts was speaking, um, and he interrupted her a few times, and she like politely asked, from what the article said, uh, "Can I continue?" He said, "No, I pay your salary anyways," or something like that, which is just so outlandish. Like Udonis Haslam and Chris Paul came down on him and said, "Well, we won't tolerate that disrespect." Uh, but then Avicii Zubac, uh, the center for the Clippers, hopefully I pronounced that name correctly. Um, tweeted out and said, I can't believe you guys are believing this. Patrick Beverly never said anything like that. So while it does sound something like something to me that he would say, because he is that type of person, in my eyes, at least on the court, I, I don't know. Uh, if that is true, what do you think about that statement, Bobby? It's it's tough. Um, <laughs> a, lot, a lot of players are very emotional right now. I think a lot of them have their own personal opinions on what kind of stuff they want to see done. Um, Some are looking for more drastic measures. Others are happy with uh, the amount of commitment and the amount of backing that the league and the players union and all these different people are giving them right now. I think this is something I've heard from a lot of people I've talked to on this, is that they're stunned that when the teams, when the league, when the players union, who are all sympathetic toward what they're looking for here, are doing what they're doing, that they're met with some of this backlash, including the boycotts that we saw the last couple of days. 
and criticisms of the teams and all that different kind of stuff. I know Fred Van Fleet was saying that the Milwaukee Bucks in particular should be putting more pressure on the local officials in Wisconsin to do something. I thought that was a fair request. Um, but others are saying, like, you know, the league, they've been nicer to you guys than a lot of other leagues would be. Um, there's all the sympathy toward your cause. You know, why are you being so aggressive towards them? And I think it falls toward a guy like Patrick Beverly, a guy – you know, who wants to see a little bit more done, a little more drastic measures. And LeBron and the Lakers and the Clippers obviously want to see this whole thing stop when the meeting was going on on Wednesday. I think in the heat of these moments, you know, mm-hmm. it's hard to put yourself in the shoes of these players and the amount of emotion that they're feeling in these moments. And I, I've seen these things, especially being on campus in Syracuse during a lot of race-related riots, is when the emotions are high in these moments, people say and do things that they'll probably regret a little bit later. And um, I'm sure Patrick Beverly down the line is probably going to end up apologizing or something like that. Um, but it's tough to kill players right now for things they say and do when they're seeing all the visuals again and again on social media of the Jacob Blake shooting. Like we we think of the positives of that video being out there. Obviously, you see what happened. It's able to come to light, all those different things. But when it's repeated over and over again on news broadcasts and on social media and all that stuff, it's very traumatic. It really is. Yeah. And I think that gets to a lot of guys. Yeah, for sure. I Personally, watching that video, I was just kind of shocked. And It's hard. It's hard to watch. Yeah. We don't have to get into the details of that because I'm sure all of you guys listening have seen the video at least once. Uh, Sam, what do you think of Patrick Beverly? Here's the thing about Patrick Beverly, right? And it's kind of funny because, you know, whether he said it or not, right? Because Zubats is now disputing the fact that he said it. Yeah. <laughs> it's something that you are not surprised or at least you're inclined to believe when you read it, right? Now, if someone said that about, like, Jalen Brown or Jason Tatum, you'd be surprised because they aren't known for that. So if there's, like, a complaint of, uh, you know, that being said about him, like, it's it's believable. You know what I mean? Like, there's a reason it's believable. It's because of the way he acts, the way he carries himself, maybe. You know, on the court, he's more of a loudmouth guy. It's not a bad thing because Marcus is a similar player. I wouldn't say he's the trash talker, but, you know, he works hard, plays hard. And basically what I'm saying is it's, it's believable. So that's why people believe it, whether it's true or not. And, and the last thing anyone wants to, I, I know the context was that Roberts was explaining the CBA situation and the business side of things and what they stand to lose in this moment. Sort of an educational aspect, of course, to this, um, letting them know the consequences of what they could be going toward in that moment. And, I don't think a lot of guys want to hear that in that moment. And so that was probably just his backlash of saying, screw the business, screw the money, all this different stuff. We're talking about human lives here. And so, you know, Michelle Roberts is the union representative of the players. That's her job. Um, I know back when they were debating about even going to the bubble, she was the one going to bat for them about the player safety and saying, is this even a safe thing to do? And ultimately ended up being a safe uh, haven for the players and a good, great idea by the league for um, continuing the season. But that's her job. And in that moment, I think her duties brush with what the players wanted to hear, um, especially Beverly in that moment. No, yeah, and I, I definitely don't think I don't think he was trying to be disrespectful necessarily. I just think he, like you said, wanted to keep the topic of the meeting on bringing change and starting and pushing forward that movement. So uh, listening to the business side of things probably was not what he wanted to hear. I know I think 
both of you at some point met, uh, mentioned Jalen Brown. I just wanted to talk about him for a sec because he's done so much for this movement, more than uh, a lot of players in the NBA. Not that players aren't doing much, but Jalen Brown has been a standout. Um, is there anything you wanted to say about Jalen Brown, Bobby, just specifically his activism in this movement? Well, he's setting a tone, right, in these interviews. He comes out, he drops a statement, and that guides the flow of the interview, which I think is what the players are trying to accomplish right now, among other things. I know the three, part of the three things that the league and the union put out there today was the Coalition on Social Justice. And so he's able to guide the conversation. That interview that he gave on Tuesday started with talking about the framing of the case. And we saw it play out this week. There's this discussion that the police chief and the police uh, department in Kenosha put out about that Jacob Blake had a knife. And the media ran with a lot of stuff about him being in position of a knife. And there was a lot of talk of was he unarmed, was he armed. And ultimately, if you read between the lines there, all that got out there was that he had a knife in the car. So, you know, it's up to you whether you want to think that's armed or unarmed, whether he was wielding a knife or not. But that comes out to a lot of people like he had a knife on him in his hand. And that was a big reason that the shooting happened. You know, again, we don't know all the different details and exactly how it went down. They're still not answering a lot of questions on that. But Jalen Brown comes out on Tuesday and says, be careful of the framing of this case. We hear it all week now, his past criminal history, um, all this talk of he was a sex offender, this and that. Um you know, he was resisting arrest. If you cooperate, you'll get out of these different situations. There's a lot of framing. There's a lot of excuse making for the actors in these situations who shoot these people. And that was what he wanted to discuss in that moment. And it guided the questions toward the lines of what they were trying to accomplish. I don't remember explicitly. I don't think there was any basketball questions in that media conference. And that's something that's frustrated me a little bit throughout this um, the whole entire bubble is that it's been tough for the media, for the reporters on the ground there to adapt to what the players are trying to accomplish when it comes to the messaging. And I know the press is supposed to be independent and they're not really supposed to follow the line of these players, but we're talking about human rights here. This isn't a very, you know, left, right. right type of situation. So I think it's more than fair if the players want to talk about these things to, you know, ask questions about it. And it doesn't have to be that questions that they want to hear. They can be tough questions. They can be, uh, questions about what kind of action is going to come out of this. But ultimately, when Marcus Smart sits down a month ago, as he did, and makes the whole press conference about Breonna Taylor, and he gets a question about defense, there's just a mismatch there. And I think yeah. that's another thing that's frustrated the players here. I don't know if you guys saw in the NHL, and that's a whole different situation right now. Um, one of the reporters from Philadelphia started his question with, put all the social justice stuff aside for a uh, second, and oh. tell me tell me what the two-day layoff's going to do for you guys. And wow. it was just like, come on. That's crazy. That's it's kind of tough because, like, like you say, like that's the tone that's been set. Like when the guy asked Marcus about defense, like that's not a good look, and it it is it's just a different situation for the press, something they're probably not used to. Yeah, yeah. The basketball infrastructure, the coverage infrastructure of sports, and you know, you guys do a podcast. I write about the Celtics, all that different kind of stuff. Um, we're used to writing about the X's and O's, the on the court drama, the trades, all this stuff. And so to wade into the social justice, history, race, waters isn't easy for everybody. Like, they're just not always built for that. And so this is an adjustment period for everybody involved, and I, I definitely understand that. Um, but it also is your job, if you're a reporter, to be read up on these different things, um, you know, have the context. And I know 
people aren't always choosing what they write about. People might have stories that they're, you know, told by the editors to follow up on, to do, and that's their job at that point. So you can't kill everybody in all these different circumstances, but you do also have to read the room and, you know, react to what's going on. Because you know you're not going to get a quite uh, answer on those questions either if players only want to talk about these things. For sure. I know I noticed it uh, when the Bucks were making their statement after they boycotted the game. Uh, Sterling Brown had just finished talking and the team was walking away. And someone yelled, hey, do you guys think you'll finish the playoffs? And I was just like, oh, man. I hate to be the guy in the room right now that just said that because it's just so not on tone and not appropriate, in my opinion. I mean, I understand it's hard and they want to cover basketball. That's what they're paid to do. So sometimes you got to ask those hard, awkward questions. But it just felt like very poor timing after they just finished their statement. And that was like the last thing you heard before the broadcast cut off. So it was it, it's definitely tough for reporters out there. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And- in that particular case, that I don't think any players were available that day. Um, no players were available today either. I know the Celtics canceled their media availability at 12. So if you want to get a question in, that was your chance to do it. And his story was probably other playoffs going to continue. So you do put yourself in an awkward, uncomfortable position sometimes as a reporter. It's, it's definitely part of the job. It is. It is tough. Um, that being said, we're going to rotate, talk about some Celtics. I feel like we did a good job covering that. Uh, I, I released a statement, an article on BannertownUSA.com. If you want more of my thoughts on the uh, issues of social injustice, feel free to go read that. Uh, I worked hard on it, so uh, check that out. But the Celtics now play Sunday, rescheduled game one against the Toronto Raptors. I wanted to open this up by asking you, Bobby, how important is game one for the Celtics to take it? It's interesting because these two teams are so evenly matched. When you when you get a bigger team, a more powerful team going against a heavy underdog, like the Lakers in Portland, for example, that game won so crucial, and you saw it play out in that series. The Trailblazers, who had won, I think, nine of an, eight of ten going into that one, the end of the playoffs, they played that like it was a game seven. And then for the rest of the series, they were completely burned out. Oh, yeah. So a team like that needed that game one. If the Celtics lost game one, I wouldn't be counting them out. It's always tough to win four out of six after that. But these two teams are so evenly matched that I don't think this is going to come down to a game one like many series do. Um, The Celtics could definitely come back from an 0-1 deficit. But, you know, game one is always important. It sets Mm -hmm. a tone. Um, The math of the series just kind of is dictated by that. But um, this one's so evenly matched. I feel like both teams have so many different advantages that they can throw at each other. Toronto has a powerful bench. We see them score 100 points in that game four against um, the, uh, the Nets with their depth. The Celtics, I think, have the best player in the series. So that counts for something, too. And then, of course, Toronto has a major injury coming in as well. So we'll see. Both teams actually do when you consider Gordon Hayward. So Mm -hmm. things are so even coming into this. I can't see the series going any less than seven games. Yeah, it's going to be super close. I know we talked about it a little on Wednesday, Sam. Uh, Game one, how important is it in your your eyes? I always feel like game one is like the most important. Well, you know, obviously other than like game seven or any other elimination game, but like, it's a massive game. You get a chance to set the tone for the series, for starters, right? And then you get a chance to pull out to an early lead. So it's always kind of, well, it's obviously important to win the game. I mean, you have to. You have to go out, send a yeah. message. This is going to show the fans or whoever, the media, whoever you care about, <laughs> that uh, what what to expect from your team for the series. You know, if the Celtics go out and they absolutely, like, shit the bed on Sunday, it's not going to be a good look. And people are going to get yeah. nervous. People are going to start writing. 
you know, it's not going to be a good look for the Celtics. And obviously, as fans, we don't want to see that from our team. Uh, you, as you're, if you're a player, you certainly don't want to hear people saying bad things about you unless it motivates you, like you're Jordan and you take it personally. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you just got to win that game, or at least you got to give it your best shot. I feel like that uh, the Raptors are going to come out with a chip on their shoulder after the Celtics blew them out, like I said the other day. And we're going to see. We're going to see what the Celtics are made out of. I took yeah. it personal. <laughs> it's like my exactly. favorite quote of the year. <laughs> exactly. Um, you mentioned this, uh, Bobby. The Raptors have a super strong bench. Played very, very well against the Nets. They dropped 100 points in the elimination game alone off the bench. Uh, Sam mentioned on Wednesday, we do a show on Wednesday, just us two, that he thinks the bench won't be as much of an issue necessarily because – like realistically, who do the Nets have on their bench to guard the Raptors? Players? Yeah, at this point, especially when Joe Harris leaves, so that was yeah. that was a positive stat for sure. So, how effective do you think the Raptors bench will be against the Celtics? Like they are very good still, but do you think it's going to be as effective as it was against Brooklyn? It depends how the Celtics run their rotations, and that's where coaching comes into this series too. Because the Celtics, of course, had the massive coaching adv- advantage in round <laughs> one over Brett Brown. That there was no question about that. <laughs> But Nick Nurse, you see him. He's got the glasses. He's got the strategy. He's got the championship ring on the his glasses. finger. The coach of the year award now, too. <laughs> the coach of the year award. Like, this guy can coach. You know, we always think of Brad Stevens being the best coach ever. But there are guys. We see Eric Spolstra in that game in the bubble. I'll coach Stevens a little bit. And I think Nick Nurse is capable of that here, too. So Stevens is going to have to keep those rotations tight and pick the right guys off the bench. He's been experimenting quite a bit between Romeo Lankford, Semi Ojale, getting immensely struggling performances from semi usually off the bench that could hurt if they, uh, they throw him out there for three minutes and they get a bad run. And is Cantor, is he the first guy off the bench? Because we've seen it go both ways with him in this bubble. Sometimes he just gets thrown that pick and roll and it's a minus 10 in th- like one minute. And then other times, I think in that Philadelphia series too, game two, he goes out there and has a plus 24 second quarter. So the way he rotates is going to be so crucial because the Raptors will go deeper into the bench than the Celtics do in this series, without a doubt. I mean, you know, the Celtics are going to have smart in the starting lineup, so that pulls some guys up the bench for sure. But things will still be tighter. I love those bench rotations when Toronto puts Serge Ibaka at center with some yeah. shooters around him. They can spread it out. They can still have a guy bang down low in him. So I wonder how the Celtics will match that. One thing we saw them do in the bubble that we didn't see them do in the first round is throw Robert Williams out there right away and get, you know, eight quick points off some lobs and some cuts to the basket. Those were huge in some of those regular season games. And then he comes out and he's behind the speed in the playoffs. The matchup against Philadelphia wasn't very good. I'm hearing that he can be a bigger part of this series uh, than he was against Philadelphia. So that's like an X factor guy for me coming into this. You know, Cantor's been good too, but those two guys can find minutes uh, together out there. Yeah, yeah, Cantor did what he was supposed to do, which was bang with Embiid down low and give him as much problems as you can while Tice is in really it. And, uh, you know, Robert Williams is more – he's undersized a little bit. He's more athletic. I think he fits really well against Ibaka this series. So that will be an interesting matchup to watch for sure, especially since you said, you know, they run him at the five and um, it's something you look forward to seeing. 
Yeah, and Grant Williams, too. Uh, that's a guy who chased For Al sure. Horford on and off the court throughout the playoffs. I know Serge is a little taller than Al, uh, but plays a similar different kind of role that, where you can go to the perimeter and face up and all that stuff. So Stevens can like that matchup as well. I think so much of what the Celtics do this year is dictated by that center position. And I'm not one of these guys who's like, they need a bigger center. They need a Andre Drummond. But- <laughs> They just need to utilize the four guys they have effectively. And those guys have all had ups and downs this year. I thought Daniel Tice had a tough series against Philadelphia, and they asked a ton out of him. But, you know, he got caught in some foul trouble in some spots. I thought offensively he was good. Defensively. can't catch a break. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He he had a tough series, and I think this could be a bounce back for him as well. I think um, he averaged like eight and six against Toronto during the year, so... Uh, you know, it, this is this is a tough matchup. Marcus All, uh, Serge Ibaka, even Chris Boucher off their bench—they have a front court. They have a powerful, powerful front yeah. court. Yeah, I, I like Tyson this series. He looked scared to shoot the ball against Philly for some reason. Like he got his huh. confidence towards the end, but I agree. Yeah. I don't know why he was so hesitant because he's honestly a solid shooter. I thirty-two percent right at all. on the season. I think something like that. Don't quote yeah. me, but that was that was that. a little. Bit. Yeah, that was a little behind. The, I think he was 39% the year before. I'm looking for his playoff stroke, because uh, I know he hit quite a few. I think he hit three or four in that series. So his percentage is probably pretty good for this postseason. But yeah, I saw some of that hesitation as well out there. Playoffs so far, ooh, 20% from three. All right, so you guys yeah. were right. Yeah, it's, he it's was weird. I don't know. He needs that confidence back up, because that was the perfect time to get it up, too. And Bede was dropping in the pick and roll, covering the paint. Tice was wide, wide open for almost every three and he he ended up pulling what what I can only explain is like he looked like Clint Capella or Steven Adams out there just standing on the perimeter not doing anything waiting for someone to come take the ball from him which yeah, is not not that's what not know. typical yeah that's not typical of him not at all I'm, I'm proud of myself I usually call Steven Adams Sam Adams so I just want to <laughs> give, my, give myself a little pat on the back there the, the TNT guy called <laughs> Daniel Tice Mike Tice to start game one that was <laughs> oh my god I love it. One of my favorite calls this year, since we're talking about um, commentators now, I forget who said it, but I think it was during a Nuggets Jazz game. He goes, "This it looks like we're playing at LA Fitness at 3 p.m. right now," and I just I <laughs> died. Having yeah, little... that was um, I think that was on the Bucks for throwing the ball around against uh, uh, whoever. Some ridiculous. It was it was great. Anyways, uh, you talked about for a second, Bobby, the bench of the Celtics and how Marcus Smart's going to be in the starting lineup. Uh, people are going to have to step up. Semi Ojeleg, Ennis Cantor, all those people struggling, playing well, whatever. How do you see the matchups of Boston's bench against Toronto's bench? Because I would argue that Toronto's bench probably has more talent at this point in time. But the Celtics bench has been playing well in the bubble. They're up and coming young guys, Romeo and Rob uh, Williams, lots of energy. How do you see them comparing to one another in the series? Yeah, I, I hate looking at that Philly series because they, they did get good bench performances out of that one. Brad Wanamaker's a guy yeah. we got to talk about as well because he led the bubble the eight games there and plus minus for the entire NBA. I thought his defense on the ball was phenomenal. Hit some shots. I think he averaged nine or ten points per game through that stretch. His three-point shot looks better. He has a little more burst to him. He'll, he'll be crucial for this series because they have some uh, guards in rotation too. Uh, who can hurt you in this one, Fred Van Fleet. Um, Patrick McCaw, I wonder if he'll be ready for the series. I know he was out in the first round. So those yeah. guards that the Celtics bring off the bench, 
going to be crucial in this one, especially defensively. Uh, you know, relieving Kemba Walker quite a bit if if he's getting hit hard by Kyle Lowry out there. Um, they can go to some bigger matchups at that guard spot with a Wanamaker-Smart combination or throw Langford out there to give themselves a little more versatility against Toronto's guards because that's that's where the Celtics will get hurt in this series. Pascal Siakam's struggling. I know he's probably 40% from the field to start this bubble through the regular season and the playoffs. So a guy like Kyle Lowry, who's been giving them steady scoring production, Fred Van Fleet, who has gone off in quite yeah, a few Freddy. of these games, especially against Brooklyn, that's the guy that scares you in this one, especially since Lowry will be getting more attention. So those guard spots, especially off the bench for Boston, going to be crucial. Yeah, I agree. Sam, what do you think about Celtics bench versus Toronto? Uh, well, Toronto obviously has the advantage. They've got a deeper team, like we've talked about. Serge Ibaka off the bench is deadly. They've got Norman Powell, who's had a good playoffs, like we talked about Wednesday. And, you know, to be fair to the Celtics, the bench has been a knock on them all year, and I think they've improved in the bubble. Now, it was Philly. Uh, Philly struggled, obviously. Defensively, but, yeah. No defensive yeah. resistance. I think... I think you made a great point about Wanamaker. I think he's been a lot better. Uh, the only problem I consistently have with Wanamaker is his vision. I don't think he makes the right pass sometimes, and it's frustrating to watch. But it's also different when you're out on the floor instead of watching on a broadcast view. So fairness to him. Uh, but, yes, he stepped up on defense. I wish Semi was playing a little better because I think he's a really good asset to have when he's able to score a little bit because he can play such good defense. But... The way he's struggled, we might not see a lot of him. Romeo's been playing great defense, doing a great job staying in front of his, uh, in front of his man. I've so, enjoyed his I, play so far. Yeah, I, I have. And he, when he got hurt in that last regular season game, I was concerned because they need all the bench guys they can get in this series. And right. when Hayward goes down, I'm like, all right, they could use him to fill that position a little bit more at this point. And then he comes back in that Philly series, didn't even look like he was hurt. I know he had some of the tearing in his wrist or whatever it was. Out yeah, of that I talked game. about this. I don't know how the man is playing with like a torn ligament. Yeah, yeah I mean, he looks great. He guarded yeah. Horford well. Yeah. So he's, like, he's not even hurt. It's unreal. Yeah. Like aren't torn ligaments like serious? I thought he was done. I thought he'd be leaving yeah. the bubble. Yeah, I thought he might have surgery. <laughs> they talked about it, playing too. They were the like, playoffs. he needs to get work done, but he's just kind of playing, and it's yeah. not being talked about anymore. And that's huge, because they need that extra wing off the bench right now. And I agree with you, Sam. Like, he, he's been phenomenal defensively. Philly saw him come off the bench, and I don't know if they knew he was hurt or they just didn't recognize him or didn't have the film on him or whatever. Uh, they went at him again and again, thinking that he would be the weak link in the defense. And he yeah, was he able to hold his own against Horford, especially. I loved when he lined up against Horford and he shut him down. Yeah, super impressed with Romeo. He's He, he seems tall for a guard for me. I feel like he should be a wing, uh, like SGSF. But he's been playing amazing, good defense, even on, like you said, big guys like Al Horford. Uh, by the way, Pascal Siakam in the playoffs so far, shooting 42% from the field and 28.6% from three. So uh, not very effective so far. So yeah. hopefully uh, Tatum can clamp him up a little bit. But speaking of that, uh, we're talking a lot of defense here because I feel like these are two very defensive-minded teams. Obviously, both are top five in the league in defense. So we mentioned this very quickly on Wednesday, but I kind of wanted to elaborate right now and get your thoughts, Bobby. Who guards who in the starting lineup? In the game against Toronto in the bubble, we saw some Lowry on Tatum. We saw some Tatum on, I don't even know, Siakam. So from both sides, who guards who, at least in the starting lineup? 
It'd have to be, I'd imagine, Siakam on Tatum. Um, and Siakam's been great defensively in this bubble. I don't love talking about that bubble game because, I don't know, Toronto just didn't seem all that interested in that game. They yeah. they got taken out of it in the first quarter and then just kind of threw in the towel. They already had the two seed locked up at that point, if I remember correctly. So they just didn't have much to play for. Um, I'd, I'd go Siakam on Tatum, give you the length there on both ends. Um, OG will end up taking Brown, and that's going to be a crucial matchup because OG is a great defender and, and an OB. And Brown has been spotting up, draining shots from all levels on the floor, giving you the backline cuts. So the Celtics are going to be an extremely hard team to defend in this series. And this is what bodes well if you want the Celtics to win this series. I think they significantly, especially if Kyle Lowry, Lowry is slowed at all, they have the better offense in the series by a significant stretch. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the three-point numbers have been astounding for Toronto. So that's something the Celtics are usually pretty good at and need to clean up is giving Toronto those open looks. I know Philly was able to manufacture quite a few open looks from three against Boston that they couldn't convert. It'll be different here with a Van Fleet in particular who shot 56% from three (laughs) in that first round. So defensively, to continue, Siakam Tatum, OG Brown. Um, I'd imagine Lowry's going to guard Kemba. And then they'll have to stick a Van Fleet on Marcus Smart. And I've said this on our postgame show as we were previewing this series on CLNS Media. Marcus Smart's going to be the X factor in this series because he's going to get the weakest link defensively for Toronto every single time he's on the floor. He'll be getting a smaller guy that he can post up in Van Fleet. Um, He'll be getting the open looks from three. And in that Philadelphia series, Smart went 10 for 30 from the field. Um, So he's struggling offensively right now. I think he was only... You know, 28% from three or something to that effect. So he needs to come up big in this series. Or I don't know how the Celtics are going to get that extra edge on offenses. Both teams, like you said, defensively minded, sharp, and can match up well. Yeah, Smart's going to be huge. Uh, it's funny Sam- you mentioned Marcus. is. Uh, I, I feel like Marcus is an above-average post player. Like, for a guard, mm-hmm. every time he gets the ball in the post, I kind of expect a basket. He's just really good at playing inside. Yeah, he, he can It's like he was meant to be a big too. man. Yeah. Yeah. So if he's got Van Fleet on him and they're posting up Marcus, I feel like you're going to see really good things for the Celtics come. You know, like you're going to see, like you said, he can pass too. So like if he ends up having to get doubled because Van Fleet's too small, you could see openings for, let's see, they probably leave Tice. So you can see Tice getting some good looks. Marcus yeah. loves to pass to Tice. He loves throw lobs. Yeah, Gasol's a little more – I mean, we've seen skinny Gasol in this bubble. He's been he's been great. Um, and they have multiple options at center. So I don't – here's the thing about Tice. You bring up Tice. They're going to play that drop coverage a ton, um, but just like Philadelphia did. And that's going to open up Tatum. That's going to open up Kemba. But then they switch to a zone. So that kind of takes away your role a little bit, almost entirely, actually. And that's something the Celtics love running. And then they'll do some more hedging on those screens. So this is what makes Toronto. I'd almost argue Toronto's the best defense in the league because of all those different looks they can throw at you. Like Milwaukee, they were the best defense this year, but they they just drop it too. They just have better personnel that can make up for those screens and get through them. Um, Toronto's able to throw like three different kinds of defenses at you, and they're all good. So yeah, Milwaukee doesn't guard threes. They just focus on guarding the paint and give up. But like they they like settle unless it's like a Seth Curry or uh, I'm trying to think like Duncan Robinson. They'll leave those threes like relatively open and just have Brook Lopez kind of like fade his hand out there to try to guard it. But that's how Milwaukee's the best defense because they give up like no easy layups ever. 
Um, so I would tend to agree. Toronto's quick. They have weapons. Every single guy in that starting lineup can defend with the best of them. Uh, even Van Vliet, he's short, and I think Marcus Smart can do well posting him up, but he's a gritty defender. Uh, I, I don't uh, expect him to put up no fight. Um, also, Bobby, wanna... let me ask you something before we continue. Uh, who's the best shooter in the league? Oh, my God. We're getting into this. I think I know who you're getting at here, and I've been saying this. I've been saying this recently too. I think it's Duncan Robinson right now. Boom. Oh my God, boom! <laughs> I how can you. you how can you argue against it? His I numbers are dynamite. His stroke is phenomenal. No, and he hits like everything. No, like, I have a new. I have a new question. So obviously, if Steph Curry's healthy, he's probably a better shooter. He's a better shooter, but. If you need a shot in the corner, stand still three, pass to the guy he's just going to pull up, anybody in the NBA when healthy, who are you choosing? Ooh, I mean, <laughs> I still, I still got to stick with Curry. Um, oh, he, yeah. Like, he... he Jack, you prick. He's oh, done this for years. He's done this for years. And yeah. Robinson's, Robinson's had a phenomenal year, but he's just Clay, coming though? on the scene. About Clay. Stand still, corner three. No movement. I'm taking I'm taking taking, so let me throw this at you Steph Curry and this is what amazes me about Robinson he took 600 threes this year and put up that 45 percent clip um Curry last year going to the finals for the Warriors took 800 and put up 44 percent so I mean this guy can he could put up a thousand and keep that clip like it's his yeah consistency is astounding see my argument was we had this debate uh I think two weeks ago or something my, my argument was Steph Curry is, yes, by far the best shooter in the league. I'm not going to argue that. But if you're talking standstill in the corner, Clay and Duncan Robinson take that shot so much, and Curry, like, almost never gets that look. Like, when's the last time you saw Curry sitting in the corner waiting for a pass? That's like the bread and butter of Duncan Robinson and Clay Thompson. They take that so- shot so much that it is just unconscious. So if I'm talking like that, I'd rather have Clay or Duncan. But, like, Obviously, Steph can make that shot, but it's just like, I don't know. They just take it more, so I trust them more, if that makes sense. He, d- he doesn't do it because he doesn't have to. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, my gosh. Okay, whatever, whatever. I hey, think right. you know what? You know what? He gets it for this year, and that's a big accomplishment. Yeah, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to be out here sliding, sliding Curry and Thompson uh, to just try to elevate him even more. I'm not that friendly with Robinson. <laughs> oh man, I was just—it it was just an argument. It, it, I still stand by the Clay and Duncan in the corner, but no, but it's yeah. an argument worth making because I, I said that to some of my friends last week, and they're like, "No way!" But he, he truly has been the best shooter in the league this year. Oh yeah, he's amazing. And if you watch any Miami Heat games, which I, I watched uh, most of their series against Pacers, he was just. He's so fun to watch because you just know what's going in. So it's 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 great. I enjoy it. In the uh, so, postseason, he is. Let's see. Oh, I'm looking at Curry. Forget about it. <laughs> gotta be something ridiculous. No, I want to. I need to find it now. I have it almost right here. Let me see. This I know box. he started like nine to sixteen. He shot forty four point four percent from three. Yeah, and he's gonna. Yeah. He, that's going to be him going forward. And that's why you can have a Jimmy Butler. The Celtics are so lucky they're not playing them in the yes. second round. I, I'd be taking Miami over them because, you know, Jimmy Butler has struggled immensely from three this year. He's almost taken out of his game. But they have so much shooting around him that it doesn't matter. I talked about this on our Around the, around the Association episode where we covered the NBA. I was talking to Sam because I, um, I watched almost every game because there's nothing to better to do, obviously. And I, I wrote recaps for him. And I was saying the Heat are maybe the most fun team to watch. 
and just the best at ball movement and passing in the league. Like they're just, they have so much shooting, so much everything. Like they're really well balanced. I think it's super impressive. They're very fun to watch. Yeah. And that's where Smoke comes in again. I mean, we say every year he's the best coach, uh, one of the best coaches in the league. And it's, it's, he still slides under the radar ever since LeBron left there. They've had mm-hmm. a few rough seasons for the late Dwayne Wade years, but he's, he makes the most of G League level talent. We still think of what he did with Hassan Whiteside. People still think Hassan Whiteside's a good player because of what he did with him there. Um, so he's, he yeah. makes the most of some of that shoddy talent. And, uh, you know, you talk about a Duncan Robinson, the story's been told a million times, but this is Division three player coming out of high school, um, yeah. switches to D1, and now he's in the NBA. Like, they, I've never seen a story like that. No, he, it's crazy story. Super nice dude. I watched him on the J.J. Reddick podcast. Seems super cool, super humble about it all. So he, he, he's fun to watch for multiple reasons. One more thing I wanted to cover before we start uh, getting into – Sam has some end-of-show questions for you, Bobby, but – I wanted to ask you, we talked about who's going to guard everybody on the Raptors for the Celtics. Like, oh, we'll see this person on this person. The issue is not necessarily hiding Kemba on defense, but he's, I think, clearly the weakest defender in the Celtics starting lineup. Who do you have him guarding? Because you could say maybe he'll guard OG Ananobi, but then, like, obviously the height disadvantage. And then do you have Lowry or Brown on Van Fleet and Lowry? Like, how do you see that matching up? it's it's going to be interesting because I, I'd almost venture to say you put him on Van Fleet and let him battle with a guy his size out there, both of them 6'1", 6'2". Um, but if Van Fleet gets a few steps behind the line and around a screen, it's going to be tough for Kemba to contest that too. Um, I wouldn't hide him on an OG. We remember 2017, Brad Stevens would put him on like uh, – you know, whatever that big man's name was from Chicago, uh, Felicio, whoever, just out on the wing because, you know, he wasn't going to attack him. So I don't think they're going to do that level of hiding with Kemba. I don't think he's that shaky of a defender that they don't believe in him to be able to stand up against a Lowry of Van Fleet. I think he'll probably start off on Van Fleet just to allow Marcus Smart to set the tone on Kyle Lowry, take advantage of having Smart in that starting lineup. Um, And Smart's going to help them quite a bit on the switches, on the help. Uh, So I don't think they have to do a whole lot to hide Kemba per se, because Smart being out there helps you so much in that regard. And I think their numbers defensively have been pretty good together out on the floor since Hayward went down um, because Smart's able to just provide so much help. Like we saw him roving against Philadelphia, doubling guys on the fly, taking risks in the passing lanes. Like Marcus Smart has to be the best help defender in the NBA. And that's the reason the Celtics were able to get by for years with Isaiah too. No, yeah. A crime he didn't get more defensive player of the year votes. The fact that Andre Drummond got one more first place vote than he did. Absolutely absurd, but. Uh, Sam, I'll let you comment on the uh, Celtics matchups and then get into your uh, end of show questions per usual. So. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I really think – I don't think Kemba's as bad as a defender as everyone likes to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's definitely gritty. He's a competitor. He he does a good job at drawing charges, which obviously isn't, you know, the complete package on defense. But he definitely has the effort. You know, there's a lot of players that people will say um, give up on defense, don't put effort. but he certainly does. Definitely works hard. You probably will see him on Van Fleet just for, uh, you know, matchup purposes. You know, they're about the same height. Um, and that might be the – maybe you put him on OG Ananobi as well because he's not as big of a threat. I think you might have said that. Yeah, uh, maybe. I'm, 
the possibility. Yeah, I mentioned it. I I think yeah. what's gonna matter is if Van Fleet starts hurting them, and he he's the X factor on the Toronto side because if he starts training threes at a high rate. That's going to put enormous pressure on Boston, especially early in these games. So that's mm-hmm. when you might see some of those adjustments made. But uh, out to start, I, I think they're going to show confidence in Kemba. I'm with you, Sam. Like he's he's not an awful defender. Their numbers go up in the wrong direction when he's on the floor defensively. But I think that's also because they're so strong defensively when he's off the court, and they have size and they have smart out there during the year. Yeah, the Celtics are a really. I'm watching like a little bit of a highlight right now. Their def- their team defense was really great against Philly. Um, I mean, granted, Philly only really had that one weapon in Embiid that they really had to worry about, but they did a great job at taking it away. Embiid got his, but like they would double team him, that ball would not find the open man almost ever. They do so much. They, they, Stevens is such a great defensive coach because he he can morph this defense into whatever he wants it to do. We see the wall against Milwaukee. We see all these different looks. They, they do some zone themselves. Uh, he has a lot of different things in his pocket, a lot of different switches, scramble switches that they can go to defensively. And I still think of last year. How much have we talked about last year's team? When they extended Stevens, he talked about getting back to – feeling good about things here like last year was tough for everybody involved he said all that kind of stuff and I truly think it's because the team didn't buy into what he wanted defensively they weren't a good defensive team last year they had the personnel Stevens was still putting the game plans out there and when Terry Roger said they were getting away from what they wanted to do I think everybody thought of the offense but I think defensively they just weren't running the game plan last year and it completely undermined the team this year you know you said early in the show Jack their top five defense again. Everybody's bought into the system, and that's why you see the level of domination that you did in round one. And that's yeah. when the Celtics are at their best too, when they're turning the teams over and they're running. Yeah, yeah, huge energy team, huge energy team. And I, I saw a lot of it with Robert Williams and Romeo Langford specifically. I always talk about how uh, the Celtics' first few games in the bubble, there was like no, no energy at all, and then that Nets game. When as soon as Rob and Romeo checked in, something just clicked. And then for the rest of the bubble, the Celtics seemed to be playing with this great intensity, especially in defense. And I don't know if it's because those guys didn't get a chance as much and that they saw that as their opportunity and them like taking advantage of it kind of sparked it for the rest of the team. But ever since then, I think it's just been great energy, especially on defense. And we saw that in the uh, Sixers series. So it's a good point. Yeah. Before that, I I know. Gary Washburn wrote before that that they didn't look like they had the intensity of the other teams in the bubble. And then ever since then, they look they look every bit the legitimate championship contender that the Lakers, Clippers, and all these other teams do. And it's because of the defense. Yeah, no. Defense is huge. I think the most important thing for this team, because obviously you can't win games if you don't get stops, and the Celtics do a great job of that. So uh, I'm excited to see how well they defend the Raptors. Uh, Sam, you want to get into your uh, end-of-show questions here? Sure. Um, so every time we have a guest on, Bobby, I like to ask them a few questions about like their Celtics fandom, I guess. So uh, my first question I like to ask is, do you have a favorite piece of Celtics memorabilia or merchandise, like a autograph or a jersey or a picture or anything like that? Yeah, I actually do. Give me uh, one second here. I think it fell behind and my And what's table. the story behind it as I'll well? Flip on, um, I'll flip on the camera for just a sec here so you guys oh, can yeah. see it. Oh, I'm excited. These are always super cool stories. I'm always super entertained with these. So this is, I mean, there's no, there's no great story behind this one, but I I do love this. When I, um, 
this was before I started covering the team. I was just going to a lot of games in 2013-14 during that awful year that uh, they were in the lottery. and Jeff Green, like always my favorite bucks, player. Jeff Green, but also Avery Bradley. I got this Avery Bradley oh, sign ball. That's uh, awesome. The number zero. Avery Bradley's one of my favorite Celtics ever, and he's not in the bubble. Um, but I was thinking of back to 2013, 2012, when he was just this guy who would come off the bench and completely shift the energy of these games defensively. He would be making three steals in the span of seven minutes and just completely tilting the angle of those games. We remember that comeback attempt in game six of 2013. And the way he grew every year, you saw the shooting percentages increase every single year under him to the point where I think it was 2017 when he shot like 50% from field, 40% from three, and he just became this dynamic offensive player. They trade him at the right time for Marcus Morris, but I still keep this probably because it's only worth 20 bucks or whatever and because i just i do i love david bradley no definitely i was really bummed when they got rid of him so i you know like i mean looking back on it like you saw like once he left like things didn't really go as well for him so like it looks like it was at the right time but i was i was bummed when they got rid of him he was one of my favorites as well and the lakers the lakers were bummed to see him go out of the bubble here so he still has some use left for him i'm trying to think i can't remember someone compared the defensive intensity of another guy coming off the bench this season um, to that Avery Bradley early in his Celtics career. Maybe Romeo Langford. Yeah, I think it's Romeo mm-hmm. Langford because if you remember 2013, 2012, especially when he got hurt before the playoffs, he wasn't giving them anything offensively. Doc Rivers would try to be putting him at point guard, dribbling, and it didn't go well at all. And he put up a lot of those zero 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 games that Romeo has. But the defensive intensity, like you said, Jack, when he came in against the Nets, it, it, it doesn't yeah. change the games quite to the degree that Bradley's did. But that guy can defend. You hear Scal talk about it a lot on the broadcast, too. Oh, yeah. Huge, huge on defense. Huge. Uh, Sam, what's all your right. next question? I always forget. So I usually go... Uh, merchandise, do you have a favorite memory aside mm. from the Celtics winning a, a title? So, like, a favorite moment that happened while you were watching a game, anything along those lines, and what is it, why? There's so many. So, I'll go I'll go in a more goofy direction, um, and then All I'll right. go in, like, a more sentimental direction. Perfect. Yeah. This was probably about two years ago now. Yeah, two years, because that was when Aaron Baines was with the team. Uh, must have been during that 2018 season when they made the run to the East Finals, and they were playing the Grizzlies one game. And I loved Aaron Baines. That year started with the Tommy Heinsohn shower right. comment, which All I'll never forget. That was, <laughs> if I had to pick a preseason moment, that would be it. Um, but this one, Jaron Jackson had just got stopped inside, and I think he fell to the ground and was sitting on the ground, and he decided to shoot from the ground, like sitting down on the ground, and Aaron Baines just came out of nowhere and whacked him into the crowd. <laughs> I still talk about that all the time because I'm just like, what? that season was awesome. You had weird Celtics Twitter that reaching its height. Awesome you had all those different personalities. You had Yabusele. You had Roger and all his personality quirks. He was a big viner back in the day. Um, so that that stuff's a big memory for me. That season was awesome on and off the court. Um, besides for the Hayward injury, of course, yeah. that one sticks out to me. Like it's just like a jaw dropping moment because it was opening night. It was um, all the excitement of playing the Cavaliers and after the Irving trade and LeBron versus Kyrie and all that stuff. And then that just emotionally that, derailed and that, that was game. Be the year when they beat him too. That was supposed to be the year. Yeah, right. sorry. I think of the Kelly Olenek game, Game 7, Wizards. That's a good one. Oh, yeah. Huge. That, I don't think like, that's an answer we've gotten, but that's a great one. Yeah, because 
how many I know like everybody felt this watching him for years like this guy has the ability to go off he's got the inside shot he's got the mid-ranger he's huge and can bang inside and he would just hesitate so much and he would pass up shots and just do all this like goofy stuff that completely you know took him out of being the best player he can and then on the biggest stage in the biggest game ever they start giving him open layups and he starts feeling himself a little bit. And all of a sudden he's just draining shots, spot up, catch, shoot and drain. And he goes off in that game for 27 points. I think he had 14 in the fourth quarter when John Wallace here, like that was just unforgettable. <laughs> he did in that Something game. Ridiculous, it, was, yeah. it was one of his last in the uniform too. So like that, that just makes you feel good about Kelly Olenek as a Celtic looking back on it. Um, there's really got to be a good one I'm missing here. Um, there's so many. I mean, I watched pretty much every Celtics game going back to 2013, so you can imagine there's been some great ones. I love Jalen Brown's three-pointer against Utah when Jason Tatum chased oh, one third, hitting him. Um, playoffs, stinking playoffs. I, I got to go back to those early years, too. Um, like when they were just coming in out of the rebuild and they made the playoffs in 2015, I went to game four that year when they almost pulled off that game four against the Cavs. Perkins was fighting Jay Crowder. Uh, Kevin Love got his arm pulled down that game and missed the rest of the playoffs. Um, yeah. yeah. There's, there's been so many over the years, so many great games. Oh, you know what? That Philly comeback in 2018. That's a great one. Two when moments. Playoffs, that's what I thought of. Yeah, two moments in 2018. That Philly one where they just went on that monster run and the crowd's going nuts. That that takes you back to why you want the crowd in the playoffs this year because that game is right. unforgettable. You can go back and watch that game forever. I mentioned that 2013 run against the Knicks. Didn't win that game, but that comeback was incredible um, with Paul Pierce and Garnett in their last game. And then the last one, James Harden, Marcus Smart, the end of that game, Al Horford's game winner, uh, the two charges that he took in the Garden. That's that that night was special, and even this year against the Rockets too, uh, the comeback on the broken up uh, free throw there when uh, Jalen yeah. Brown hit the game tire to go to overtime. That was unbelievable. So so many comebacks, so many memories. It's hard to pick one. So I gave you like eleven there. <laughs> hey, that's great. The the Marcus Smart one I think is the most popular answer we've gotten. The the double charge. And yeah, I think I, that's that might be mine at least in recent memory. Because they uh, story story time. Uh, <laughs> Sam. <laughs> yeah, I, I tell this story like a good amount when we talk about this. So when that game happened, I was uh, I was in London and it was like four in the morning when I was watching this game there. So like that, the, first of all, the comeback's happening. So like it's all building up the energy, right? And then, you know, the double charges happen and I want to like freak out and like scream and like be ha- hyped and everything. But like I couldn't because like it was four in the morning. And we were staying in a flat, like, with, like, neighboring rooms and stuff. So, like, we couldn't, like, I couldn't get hyped. And I didn't want to wake my mom up either. So, like, I I was just silently, like, pumping my fist watching the game on my iPad. Yeah, I was in Spain last year during the 18-19 season, the beginning of it. And um, we all all know how that season went. But there was a lot of hype coming in. And I couldn't watch a lot of the games because they were at 1, 2 a.m. And I had class at 7. Um, So, so. I'd wake up every morning. I'd always say, like, I'm not going to check the score. I'm just going to go back and watch it without knowing what happened. But one, That's a impossible. Lot of, no, a lot of mornings I check the score. But I'd be like, they lost to the Hornets? They lost to the Knicks? They lost, <laughs> like, I watched all the, like, complete, uh, you know, dysfunction of that season play out, checking the morning scores overseas. 
That's brutal. Because then I, I imagine you still went back and watched the games too. Yeah, and think it's of like all that's the ways like the, the deal yeah. here. Like when we do stuff like this, you still have to watch. Yeah, think of all the ways they lost those games too, especially that one against Kemba and the Hornets. Um, when that Kyrie complained crazy. about the double team and he just hit all those shots. And then the one they lost against the Knicks was bad. Like they played like absolute garbage in the first half at the Garden, and then they almost pulled off a comeback, but they didn't. And it was really frustrating. Yeah, it was so easy to see something was wrong with that team, much deeper than the talent on the court. Um, like the way the ways they were losing and the teams they were losing too. We've been watching for ten years now, and that stuff didn't happen with other Celtics teams. Brutal. It, it was a brutal year for sure. <laughs> it's tough to watch. I think I think it's great that you mentioned the game six in twenty thirteen because I think that was the moment that really made me realize I love this. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. I was just getting old enough to kind of have my own, like, serious interests, like, you know, basketball yeah. or whatever. Um, you know, I'd always kind of supported the Celtics, but I never really was, like, super into it because I really wasn't old enough to appreciate what was going on. And, like, that was it. I was like, this is, like, awesome. And like, you thought the they were going to win. Ever. Like, you, you start exactly. watching the Celtics at that time, and you're like, they pull these off. And you see it tilting. They had already won two games before that after going down 3 nothing, And you're like, this is really going to go to a game seven after being down 0-3, like the way the game was going. And then Amon Shumpert got that steal and broke up the run there. And I think Jeff Green missed a free throw, and time just ran out. And fortunately, the benefit of losing that game is that they decided to break up the team and do that trade, and it all worked out well um, out of the shock of losing that badly in round one. And now, they didn't have Rajon Rondo in that series either, and that ended up probably being for the better in the end, too, that they lost so badly so early, and they couldn't tell themselves they had another chance to go around. Yeah. Hey, all worked out. Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, future of the franchise now. So uh, what goes around comes around. I'm, I'm happy it happened. Uh, Sam, is there one more that we didn't get to? Uh, oh, yeah. Has there, uh, is there a favorite game that you've been to? Um... You know, I've been to a lot of games over the years, and <laughs> the one that comes to mind now, especially since we don't know when we'll be able to go to games again um, for the foreseeable future, is the last one I went to in December, the Taco debut game. Uh, I was at that game, too. That's crazy. Oh, my God. Do you remember how loud it was in there? Oh yeah, it was Lord. like... Who like they playing again? Detroit. Detroit. Yeah. I was there, too. <laughs> Yeah, I was yeah. covering that game, and the, it was obviously a big-time blowout. Tatum and Brown at 30 apiece, if I remember correctly. And they bring out Taco, and the place was as loud as any playoff game I've ever been to. I went to the oh. Paul Pierce-Kevin Garnett return game. That's another noteworthy one on here. That place was explosively re- loud during that. And, like, this this met that level. Um, I'm trying to th- – oh, easy. I went to the Isaiah 53-point game. No <laughs> way! Yeah, wow. I was there for that. And that one's that that one has very sentimental value for me because I was a freshman in school at the time. I had just gotten back from my freshman year and um my dad was he had cancer at the time. I was in the hospital watching a lot of that series, doing a lot of the post game shows from there. And uh, you know, he didn't have much time left. And so I was I was obviously feeling down. I had a lot of friends in and out and the Celtics were obviously in Boston, and I there was a game that night. I had a little bit of extra money, so I was like, whatever. I'm, I feel like crap. I'm just going to go to one of these games with my buddy. So we got balcony seats, um, and you know Isaiah is switching on the Morris, scoring inside. This was when Isaiah was going through the stuff with his sister at the time, too. Yeah. So I sort yeah. of felt that with what was going on with my dad at that time. So 
um, he that game was just incredible. The crowd, the performance, and obviously it played a big role in that series. That was game five of a two-two series, and you know we know what happened in seven with Olenek. Mm-hmm. So that was incredible. That's one you never forget. Um, one of the great playoff performances has ever been. No, yeah. I'm sorry to hear about sure. your dad, but that's such a great memory. Of that yeah, game. yeah. That series. That's that, that's why there's a lot of sentimental value for that series, even though they didn't go on to win the Eastern Conference Finals. Um, there was so much crap talk between those two teams. There was so much uh, talk about the Celtics, whether they were legit, and they came out in a big way, improved in that series, and helped me get through a tough time. Yeah, it's huge, amazing yeah, series. That's part of the reason why we all watch. Honestly, is you know it gives us all something to like get behind and really you know root for and it's like uh especially like with this year's team right like you you really feel like a connection to a lot of these guys like yes. it seems like a fit it, especially like Marcus smart because he really kind of gives back and he like he really embraces the fans on twitter and stuff like that so like that's why a lot of people like him obviously with his hustle and everything else but it really feels like a family that you like. You feel like you know them, even though you don't. Yeah, and, and let's bring it back to the social justice stuff too. They're, they're the center of so much of it between Brown and Ennis Cantor and all the stuff he's doing. Um, Marcus has been active with all this stuff too. Like they, they're the center of so much of the future of the league. The great players of the league. I, I'd argue they have four of the top thirty guys in the league when you consider Hayward in there. So. Like they they have a special thing going right now, and it's still amazing to think that this is all just a year out from one of their worst years ever. Oh, yeah. yeah, such a great turnaround. It's it's yeah. amazing to see. And it, it's funny you mentioned the taco game, right? So like how you said it was so loud in there. I was fortunate enough to uh, go to the Paul Pierce game where it was his last game when he was on the Clippers. Yeah, and that's like the taco vibes were similar to that. Like, when they were begging for Doc to put Paul Pierce back in the game, and they finally did, like, that was, like, this almost the same thing as when Taco finally got to go in. Yeah. Crazy. That's so crazy to think of. I just it, – it, it's a meme. Like, he's literally just a meme of a player, but he's so, like, beloved by Boston that – it's so crazy to see the impact that has. It is. It might be a meme, but like his work ethic should not be discounted. Yes, I know you're not doing sure. that, but there are people that do that. And like the dude definitely works hard and he wants to be known for more than that. I'll say this too. He, he's going to be a big part of what the league does going forward, expanding into Africa. I think he's, he more than anyone has been active in that. He's part of the, you know, uh, league's representatives in Senegal. Um, they're starting an NBA Africa league. They were going to start it in March but it got delayed with COVID, of course. Um, and he's been active in that, bringing the sport to the country more and more. Uh, he's. I had a long chat with him at that game after that, or before the game, actually, about that, since he was, of course, in the building. He wasn't in Maine for that one. And uh, it was a great conversation. He's smart as hell. I know he studied... Um, he, he, he did a legit degree at UCF. I, I don't, I'm trying to remember if it was engineering or something else, but he, he studied something legit at UCF. It wasn't one of those, uh, you know, basketball degrees. So Charles Barkley degree. Yeah. <laughs> you ever hear about like what he would say he would do? Like you'd just, he'd be like, yeah, like some dude would just go taste the test for me. Oh, and he sneak out of the back. Yeah. Yeah. Those are great interviews. <laughs> and how, how great are those guys been during this run too on inside the NBA that I don't watch that. Always the best. I'm usually watching. I'm usually working during the games or after the games. I'm on the shows or whatever, so I don't get to watch it a lot. But the last week I was watching it, and the the stuff they say is just so funny. Like <laughs> they have great chemistry. It really, it's almost like they're all like just buddies, like just knocking on each other all the time. 
Yeah, but I, I hope Taco's with the team going forward. Like, that's a – we talk about the family, like, the importance of all the different guys on there. Like, that's another guy. I know it, we all just laugh at the height and the post-game minutes and the crowd going crazy about him, but you dig deep on him. He really is an incredible person that you, you love being part of the team. For sure. Yeah. And I, I, like I, I say, like, he definitely has the work ethic to be around and, like, I mean, I, I don't think they would have taken him on the team if they didn't have some kind of intention to do something with him. That's just not how the Celtics operate. Yeah, and he uh, he showed spirits in that summer league. And even in the few different games that they've thrown him into, he, he plays the drop defense for them. And, you know, he has nice touch around the rim. And uh, he's agile enough, I'd say, for a 7'6 guy. He still <laughs> looks like he's in slow motion out there, as we saw at that Detroit game. But um, he, he's got potential. He's working hard. He's going to shoot the threes like Manute Bowl did back in the day. Uh, he's trying out that turnaround jumper. So he's trying to put it all in his get bag. Oh, yeah, I'm excited. I feel like if he can develop even like a similar game to Boban Marjanovic, he could be a legitimate rotation piece because Boban plays for the Mavs, and he plays pretty well. So yeah. I have high hopes for Taco. Sam, are there any more questions, or uh, is that you usually have the jersey questions? So I'll let you. Do oh that one. yeah, do you have any favorite uh, jerseys, Celtics jerseys? Yeah, but I gotta go. I'll flip on the camera again. Al Horford, uh, man, what yeah. a what a Celtic! What a Celtic! We talk about that 2017 run, the 2018 run. I think he was the biggest reason for both of those. Isaiah obviously did amazing things in the first one. You had uh, Jason Tatum thriving in the second one, but the guy who put it all together was Al Horford. Um, hated to see him go last summer. Uh, guess it was the right move. I think if they signed him, it probably would have went better here than it did in Philadelphia. Yeah, sure. I agree. Um, I think he gets a lot of flack from Philly fans because they spent so much money on him, and like it was a big deal. The biggest deal from that is that they don't have to play against him anymore. And like, not for nothing. In the series against Celtics, when he was the when he was the big man on the floor, I honestly thought he looked kind of dangerous. Yeah, he did. He did, and he wasn't great in the series. He wasn't great all year. But you see, when there's a lot more stuff happening behind the scenes, and he talked about it too, that that wears away on guys, and there's a disconnectedness. Horford is not an individually legendary defender. Um, you know, he was never the defensive player of the year in Atlanta or any of these things, but he was in two great situations in Atlanta and Boston that had good defensive systems that brought out the best in him. And uh, within the context of the system, made him a phenomenal defender. He's undersized. He's 6'9", uh, doesn't have the greatest length in the world, but he, when he's in position and, you know, has the right pieces around him and they're moving on a string, he's as good as any uh, modern center that you can ask for in a modern defense. So I hope they're able to find a training partner for him. Uh, they, that's a tough contract. I don't think anyone, especially during these COVID days, wants to take that on. But it is also just for two more years after uh, after this one. So, um, maybe, you know, one of these teams at the bottom, like the Knicks or the mm-hmm. Hawks or, you know, maybe even the Kings, uh, they feel good about investing in him as a chemistry guy, as a center for their team. I saw Hornets for Nick Batum, maybe make the contracts work. So yep, that I'd works. That give works. a little more shooting to Philly. But, uh, when Al Horford was screaming that one game, I was kind of <laughs> terrified cause he never shows that emotion, but. Oh, in the uh, playoffs, he just went to another level and, oh, um, yeah. You know, Anna Horford's interactions with the fans on Twitter, too. That was another thing from 2018. That just uh, 
Like, yeah, Twitter, Twitter was the place to be during that 2018 season. Like, you just had to be on there every single night because something funny, something uh, weird or something, you know, uh, very personal to the team would happen on Twitter. And you just had to be witness to it every single game night. No, yeah. Anna Horford said something this year. She was like, if only we had Brad Stevens to coach a couple plays. LOL. I, was, <laughs> I was dying. I was like, damn, she can really say that, huh? But. And I thought she it was talks crazy. about how the other siblings are like, come on, quiet down. And she yeah, still doesn't. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, that's all the questions we got usually for the end of the show, right, Sam? Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, that being said, I feel like this is a good place to wrap it up. Uh, Bobby, yeah, you tell people where to follow you, what you got going on, CLNS, all that stuff. Yeah, so we do a post-game show after every um, – and, Jack, that's where I met you. We used to do the audio post-game yeah. show after every game, and we had you on there a couple times before the season ended, so that was great. Great um, we do it um, on Facebook, Twitter, all these different social media platforms after every game live now, video format now. So you definitely want to check that out. I have a piece coming today on all the social justice stuff, just like uh, you had today, Jack. Um, that should be out shortly um, on Celticsblog.com. And, of course, follow all of us over there for the playoff run. And uh, my podcast, Dome Theory, Sports and Culture, um, every every Friday. So check that out. Subscribe, iTunes, Spotify, all those places. Um, and that's on realbobmanning.com as well, uh, at realbobmanning on Twitter. Yeah, so appreciate you guys. This was fun. Yeah, it's a really great yeah, time. Yeah, it was an awesome time. Uh, I know. I'm all, yeah, thank you so much. I know I'm always free. I'm sure Sam would be too. If you ever need guests for your podcast, CLNS, we'd be more than happy. Love it. Be an honor. Uh, great having you on the show. I really appreciate it. You guys can follow me at Bannertown Jack. And per usual, Sam, I'll throw it over to you. Okay. Uh... Follow the podcast on Twitter. I think we're up to 50 followers now, which is really cool since we're not yes, really sir. doing like any follow grinding. We're not like following natural. and following people. It's natural. So, yep. At underscore from the Raptors. Uh, we've been getting a lot of listens lately, so I want to say thank you to everyone that's been yes. listening, uh, you know, interacting with us. Has ever been a guest? Anything like that? We really appreciate it because this is a lot of fun for us and seeing it be kind of successful, at least at our level, is really cool. For it sure. makes us want to do it even more. So thank you for that. Um, Celtics play Sunday. I don't think there's a time yet. If there is, then you'll find out soon. Uh, but follow me at Bannertown Sam. That's it for today. Uh, thank you. Bye.